I'm Dick Alstrom, and you're listening to Vaccine Questions, brought to you by the Royal Irish Academy Life and Medical Sciences Committee in partnership with the Health Research Board. In each episode, I'll be chatting with experts from public health, immunology, virology, bioethics, statistics, and behavioral science. I'll be asking them to explain how science is helping us to tackle this virus and trying to understand vaccines and vaccination a bit better. Our guest today is Emer Cook, director of the European Medicines Agency. Perhaps you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Emer. Yes, thank you very much, Dick. Yeah, my name is Emer Cook, and as you've just said, I'm I'm the executive director of the European Medicines Agency. Um, I'm a pharmacist, Irish pharmacist, uh, qualified in 1982, and I have worked in medicines regulation for over 30 years in Europe, uh, in Ireland, in um, in uh, uh, Europe, Belgium, Prague. Um, London, and now I'm based in Amsterdam, and uh, I am uh, passionate about uh, medicines regulation, passionate about access to safe, effective, and uh, high-quality products. Emma, can you explain a little bit about how the European Medicines Agency contributes to vaccine safety and how it interacts with our health products regulatory authority and with our national immunization advisory committee. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting for me to have the opportunity to explain a little bit what the European Medicines Agency does, because a lot of people uh, would never have been familiar with our activities and are only just beginning now in the context of our work on the COVID vaccines. Um, we're becoming a little bit more visible. So we were in we're an agency. We were set up in 1995, and our job was to coordinate the scientific resources across Europe for the evaluation and supervision of medicines. And the idea behind it was that, given the new technologies that were in the pipeline at that time, it didn't make sense to have each member state doing everything themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, we, the legislator put together um, a European agency with scientific committees made up of all the health authorities, uh, the, the regulatory authorities in each of the member states. So we have a committee on human medicines products that is made up of the 27 uh, experts from the 27 uh, member states. So from Ireland, the representatives are from the HPRA, the Health uh, Product Regulatory uh, Authority. And we evaluate all new medicines and vaccines. Uh, now there are some mm-hmm. uh, technicalities, so maybe it's not everything, it's not every new medicine, but it's something like 95% of any new product uh, wishing to come onto the European market comes through the European Medicines Agency. I guess the bottom line is that all of these various agencies are there to um, demand safety from from people who are presenting products for sale, isn't it? Yeah, so we we have, um, we look at this, the safety, the efficacy and the quality of every new medicine. And we have, we ask uh, the companies to, to do uh, specific tests to that are internationally recognized that are known to determine the risks and benefits of any new medicine. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it's 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 a it tends to be a, a very substantial package of information that we look at. It means we've got toxicologists, we've got virologists, we've got immunologists, we've got experts in all the different therapeutic areas who are evaluating bits of this information and giving us a, um, a view um, in terms of the overall uh, safety, efficacy and quality of the product uh, for the European population. Uh, vaccine safety has come to the fore because of concerns over the AstraZeneca vaccine in particular. Um, the agency says there is a link between the clotting that we've seen in some patients and the vaccine itself, uh, but it also argues that it should be used despite this. Is there a contradiction here? Yeah, now that's a very, very good question and it's a very complex question, Dick. So, I mean, the overall benefits of vaccines uh, have to be seen in context. So vaccines are an important tool in helping us to save deaths and hospitalization uh, from COVID-19. As part of the, of the evaluation of the vaccine, we look at all uh, all the safety information that's been presented in clinical trials to see what are the uh, usual side effects, what are the um, uh, what we have to warn uh, patients about, and then we also have a system for once the product actually gets on the market, we have a system for monitoring all the potential side effects after the, it comes on the market. And as part of this monitoring, we picked up these uh, rare clotting disorders. Now, in the beginning, it wasn't clear whether they uh, they were were linked to the vaccine or not, because just because there is a there is a relationship in time between after the vaccine doesn't mean that um, there is. Uh, that they're actually linked to the vaccine. And in fact, this is still not really clear that it's 100% linked to the administration of the vaccine. But we examined the effects in more detail. We got another dedicated expert uh, group to look at that. And we saw that there was a strong possibility that these could be that were related to the vaccine, but they're still very rare. So we're talking about a rate of about five people in every uh, million vaccinated uh, have a risk of getting this side effect. So it is still very rare. And the amount of people who would benefit from getting the vaccine in terms of the deaths that would be saved is much, much higher. So that's what, that's what we're trying to balance all the time in these evaluations. It seems like a difficult juggling act. It's, it's very difficult, not really uh, because we have different death rates across Europe. We have different uh, incidences of COVID. Um, and so it's very, you, you have to contextualize it for people to understand. Um, but actually, with every medicine you put on the market, it, there's likely to be some uh, rare side effect that uh, you do your your best to manage as a regulator to give um, the doctors and the nurses uh, the right information so that they can they can look out for signs and then manage um, manage anything that that comes up and, mm -hmm. and maybe if I can just um, point to one thing that we've learned from uh, our involvement of getting patients involved in the uh, regulatory process. What we found was that when we got patients involved more in our regulatory processes, the risks that patients were prepared to take 
was actually much higher than the risks that the regulators were prepared to take on their behalf because they knew what it was like to get the disease and they knew you know what it was saving them from basically that's a surprise that's that's quite interesting that you know that the patients themselves would say if this is worth it we we need to take the risk this is our experience we've um, we in the beginning of our of the the regulatory process there was very little involvement of patients now we have patients on almost all of our committees and um, and we try to get uh, uh, patients who are familiar with the disease or, you know, you will have a number of, of um, disease groups where, where patients really understand the disease, they understand um, how people living it, they understand uh, the effect it has on their family, on their, um, on their carers. And that, that's been very, very beneficial for regulators to understand that in that context. Almost every vaccination program that we've seen over the past years comes up against something called vaccine hesitancy, um, where patients are unhappy, they're either fearful or lack trust in the jab. Has there been much evidence of vaccine hesitancy emerging during this campaign? Uh, yes, in fact, I, I think this has been um, uh, vaccine hesitancy is a big challenge. Um, I think there are many uh, ways of, of understanding vaccine hesitancy and some of it is fueled by um, the anti-vaccine um, lobby, but some of it is about really um, and not understanding the process, not uh, having trust in the system, not having enough information about the benefits and risks of the vaccine. So what we have tried to do is to be as transparent as we can about all the process involved in the uh, medicines regulatory process, about the, um, uh, the side effects that are being reported. We, are, we, we publish a monthly update on all the different side effects. And if anything untoward comes up, we have a dedicated evaluation of it. But I, I would stress that um, the, there is many different, I don't think there's one size fits all when it uh, comes to uh, dealing with vaccine hesitancy because different people um, have concerns for different reasons. So it's important that we, we try to understand all the, um, all the ways where we have to try and provide information that makes sense to uh, people thinking diff in different ways. Trying to build trust so that people look at the information you, you give and take it to heart. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, we often try to include questions from our listeners and there's an important one that came in from Alan in Dublin. Um, he's, he's not opposed to getting the vaccine, but he says, is there anything that suggests that, that it would be dangerous over time, that side effects would emerge, uh, but not until years later? Is there any evidence one way or the other that this won't happen? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I would like to uh, reassure listeners is that, you know, this this monitoring of side effects on of, of vaccines or medicines, it's for life. It doesn't stop as soon as the, it doesn't stop once the, there's no, no longer any attention to the disease. We continue mo monitoring the side effects for as long as that product is on the, on the market. 
there is no, there's nothing that's come up in the clinical trials or in the initial use of any of the vaccines that would point to any long-term effects. But we will, we will continue to monitor, monitor this over time. Yes, it's an ongoing process. Absolutely. Okay. And it's very, it's very rigorous. You know, we take it very, very seriously. It's the long-term safety um, aspect that seems to cause the most problem, I think. Where do these doubts come from, though? Does it mean that we just don't believe someone or you know, we haven't got proper trust in governments and regulators? What would you, what, what do you think? Yeah. You know, it's it's very hard to 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 break down. I mean, I don't. You know, when I think of it, and I've I've spoken to my family, and I've spoken to my mother, and I said, you know, you had us vaccinated. You know, why I was brought up in Dublin in the 1960s, and I was vaccinated against all the common childhood diseases. There were uh, there were some um, vaccinations that weren't available at that time, but. But I was I was vaccinated, and you know I I don't think I don't think she thought twice about it, and of course I didn't think twice about it, and I vaccinated my own children according to the national guidelines, and um, I'm very happy that they're protected against smallpox and TB and diphtheria, um, and measles, um, mumps and rubella. Um, I think people forget how serious these diseases are and the long-term effects of a disease. First of all, you mightn't have a long-term effect of a disease because you might be dead. You know, I think people really forget how, what a difference, what game changers vaccines have been. It's also because we're very lucky because we do have vaccines available to us uh, and we almost take it for granted. But, you know, I knew uh, people who had polio when I was growing up um, and now polio is eradicated. So, um, you know, I, I, there's nothing to indicate from the, the many childhood vaccines that we've been exposed to that there are long term effects from these. Um, and I suppose that gives, gives me a lot of confidence for the, for the more recent vaccines as well. Yeah. If you think that um, there's a certain amount of mistrust um, people hold against these regulators and governments, um, you wonder how, how, you know, those that are expressing the most concern are the ones that are most influenced by misinformation. Is misinformation, you know, a real central problem in, in expressing what these vaccines are good for? I think certainly for uh, Regulators internationally, the whole um, the the um, the question of misinformation and the prevalence of misinformation uh, is something that we have to counter, and we have to find the right tools to counter. And you know, we're we're used to using uh, originally we were writing letters. Now, of course, we're using our website. But actually, the people who are who are um, spreading misinformation aren't using websites; they're using uh, social media platforms, and so we we have to try and 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 uh, also monitor different platforms so that there is a definitive source of um, right information there to combat the misinformation that's going around. Yeah, it seems social media seems to be you know delivering these problems. You know. They're just really not, it's not right that, that the information should be there in the first place, but how can you stop it because people feel it's a right to express themselves? 
I mean, I strongly believe people have a right to express themselves, but I think people also have a right to have the right information. And I think that people should know where to go to find definitive information. And we make sure that we put information on our website that is also reader friendly, shall we say, you know, Mm -hmm. in the expectation that it will be understood uh, by people who choose to find it. And we also, I think I mentioned before that we involve patients and healthcare professionals in our communication. So we ask them, does this make sense? Does this make, you know, is this something that that resonates with you? Uh, Is this the right way to express it? So we do a lot of work to try and communicate our information effectively and also um, uh, try to counter misinformation. And this is something that's already underway and uh, I assume for some time within the agency. This is something done by the agency. Yes, um, we've we've had uh, in in terms of our communication policy and our involvement of patients and our sort of lay language information. That's something we've been doing for a long time. Yeah. We have upped our game in terms of communication in the context of of COVID. Uh, we've had the first ever public stakeholder meetings um, online where anybody could register and and ask us questions. We've had three of those so far. Public events after each of the uh, vaccines that we've authorized. We've now authorized four uh, vaccines in Europe. Uh, So we've organized public communication events after these. And we're trying to be as responsive as we can and to make sure that we're uh, listening to what concerns there are and trying to address those in, in a way that makes sense to those who are raising the concerns. Of course, you're at a disadvantage because you can't make it up as you see fit, <laughs> like the people going out over social media. No, I mean, you know, I think our strength is that we're based on evidence and science and uh, we will, we're going to stick to the evidence and science. Our challenge is communicating that in an effective way that everybody will understand and will trust. The companies play a central role in safety, as they put it themselves, that you know, safety is applied all the way through the system that, that they deliver uh, drugs up to the agency to have assessed. But how do we know that what they tell us is true? Do, is there some way to kind of protect ourselves from improper studies or um, wrong collection of data, things like that? Well, um, so we we have a sort of a standard package of information we require companies to provide us with. We also have... Um, Uh, we have the possibility to inspect their facilities to check that they have done the things the way they said they were doing. Um, And we have a possibility to go and look at how they're manufacturing, look at how they've done the clinical trials. Um, So so so-called GCP, GMP inspections. But I I think the main thing that I'd like to to point out here is that our our reviewers are very alert to any signs that might indicate that there has been falsification or misrepresentation. And any inconsistencies raise questions, and we make sure to probe further in these these cases. And then we will follow up with a dedicated uh, uh, inspection or dedicated questions as necessary. So one, we have the... Um, we have the requirements. Two, we have people who are basically questioning everything that's coming in and looking for signs that there might be something wrong. And then we have the possibility to to follow up either 
uh, by additional probing or by uh, on-site inspections to check it's all it, it all has been done the way they said it was done. Very good. Um, people would be reassured that if you if you um, depending on how you answered this next question, is there any aspect of safety or reliability that was left out of the process, given the fact that everyone was so rushed to get their, their vaccines on through the system and out to the public? Um, you know, the assumption outside, out amongst the public, I think, was that there's been such haste that corners must have been cut. Well, um, you know, I think we all have to celebrate the fact that barely one year after the virus was discovered, we had effective vaccine against a, a devastating and debilitating disease. And that was because there was a huge amount of collaboration and, and, and finance put into this. But also we were able to get, uh, because of the disease incidents, we were able to get very large data sets. So we got an, a large number of people who were exposed to the disease, which allowed us, allowed the trials to tell us, you know, uh, what the, the safety and efficacy was. And that was something that we could do because of the disease incidents at the time. So I think people forget that. But I, I can quite categorically say that corners were not cut. Uh, that we have been able to do this because of international collaboration, um, uh, dedicated resources put to it, and the overall disease incidents that allowed us to gather a lot of information quickly. So sometimes when we have an infectious disease, it might just have a one outbreak every every year, and we're trying to do a trial in that context, which means it's very hard to uh, collect enough information to allow you to make judgments on the safety and efficacy. I think in general terms, aren't, aren't um, regulators satisfied if you have maybe 10 or 20 or 30 or 40,000 people on your trial? I mean, with COVID there, you could have 25 million nearly involved in a, in, a, in a trial with data coming in on how people have been, how the effectiveness of the drug or product was. Yeah, so, so we have the data sets in the clinical trials, and most of those have been around 30,000, 40,000, which is a very big data set for, um, um, uh, for a, a, a vaccine normally. But, then, but now we have the usage, we're, we're monitoring the, what we call the real-world usage, the real-world evidence of the use of the, of the uh, vaccines as they're rolled out. So we're getting additional information all the time that's, that's telling us more about uh, the effectiveness and most of that actually looks better than what we're seeing in clinical trials and also confirming uh, confirming the safety. Very good. And um, this is looking ahead a little ways and um, maybe we don't know the answer to this question yet, but are we, we presumably are going to have to have modified vaccines to take account of, of you know, new uh, versions of the of the, the COVID nineteen um, bug, um, well we you know, well we have systems that can move faster to get those cleared so we can run uh, new vaccines. Yeah. So uh, as the new variants have been emerging, we've been talking to each of the vaccine manufacturers. Uh, asking them to look at the effectiveness of their vaccine against that new variant and being ready to adapt the process in case there might be um, a need to change the approach to vaccination completely. So uh, we've asked the companies to look at 
the effectiveness of the vaccines in the light of the existing variants and also how to adapt it should there need to be a change to deal with the new variant of concern. And we have also put out some guidance that will allow an accelerated process uh, approve a possible uh, modified vaccine in the event that that was deemed necessary to deal with the variants. So we're, we're working both from a, we're working from a scientific, regulatory and a communication perspective uh, to make sure everything's in place should that be needed. Yeah, so it's there and up and running and, and people are getting prepared for this. Absolutely. Okay. Um, one more thing in relation to misinformation in that. You've described the, the approach that's been taken. Um, can you think of any other things that could be done or, you know, anything to reduce vaccine scepticism? Uh, I, th I think we have to keep making, we have to um, keep information flowing to be as transparent as as we can to be even more transparent than we've ever been before and to be ready to answer all the questions that people have. I think the, the worst thing we can do is to um, hide behind a bureaucratic administrative organization and, say, and, and hope that people will find us there somewhere. I think we have to listen, we have to learn and we have to adapt. And we just want people to understand the process behind and why they have can have confidence in, in what yeah. Um, and what regulators are doing to ensure the safety and efficacy of these products. Very good. The last thing I want to ask you about is you. I think you joined um, the EMA in November last year, wasn't it? That's right. I started on the 16th of November. So at that point, I forget whether we were building up to a surge or we were coming down from surge. But you landed into this hot seat. One way or the other, it's it's absolutely remarkable. It must it must have been really tough. What was it like for you, kind of landing into this central role, just at this, as you know, while there's, while there's a pandemic going on? Well, uh, yeah, I I was very glad that I had been working. I was working in the World Health Organization for the last four years, and actually, I had been working on various aspects of vaccines and medicines uh, regulation against COVID effectively since uh, January of 2020. But I arrived in the job about, I think it was uh, just over a week after the first positive results from the, um, uh, the uh, Pfizer uh, vaccine came out. And of course, there was a huge additional attention at this point. Um, but um, it been extremely uh, challenging but extremely motivating because you can really see what a difference your job makes or my job makes now and also uh, because we're very visible and um, normally medicines regulators aren't that visible it means that you know we have to we have to be accountable. We have to look at way, new ways of doing it. We have to be quicker. We have to communicate better. So there's a whole lot of very positive elements that come out of um, a challenging situation like this. And I can say never a dull day. <laughs> I say you're relishing every minute of it, are you? <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's a huge responsibility. It's a huge responsibility, but there, uh, we have such wonderful people working across Europe and, you know, they all, uh, their job, you know, we all want to uh, make sure that 
the, the products uh, that the European patients get or the products that they need and that they can have confidence in. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Emer. It's been very interesting to, to chat with you about these issues. Um, there'll be more to say tomorrow and the day after that, but for now, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and thanks also to our partners in the Health Research Board, without whom this show would not be possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to hit subscribe. And if you want to recommend the show to others, just tell them to search Vaccine Questions wherever they get their podcasts. And if you have a question you'd like me to ask our experts next time, we'd love to hear from you. Just send your question along with your name and location to vaccinequestions at rie.ie. Take care and talk to you next time.